Hello and welcome to this podcast produced by the Ursinus Parley Center for Science and the Common Good. My name is Lily McQueen. And my name is Alexa Beecham. Today we are joined by Dr. Jayatri Das. Dr. Das is the Chief Bioscientist at the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia, PA. She led the development of the Institute's newest two permanent exhibitions, Your Brain, the National Award-Winning Exhibit at the Neuroscience and Psychology of the Human Brain and Sports Zone. Dr. Das received a BS in biology and a BS in biochemistry and molecular biology at Penn State University. She earned her PhD in ecology and evolutionary biology from Princeton University and conducted postdoctoral research in biology at the University of Pennsylvania. Prior to joining the Franklin Institute, Dr. Das was awarded a Christian Mirzian Science and Technology Policy Fellowship from the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine, during which she developed and evaluated programs at the Marion Koshland Science Museum in Washington, D.C. In 2016, she was honored with the American Alliance Museum's Nancy Hawks Award for Professional Excellence. Dr. Das is also an invited fellow of the Center for, si- Center for Neuroscience and Society at the University of Pennsylvania. Thank you for joining us today. I'm excited to be here. All right, so to start things off, can you tell us a little bit about your role as a science communicator and bioscientist? Sure. I'd say that my job kind of breaks down into four different categories. The first one is developing science content for the different kinds of things that the Franklin Institute does. So as you mentioned in your introduction, I've done exhibit development where we come up with all the science that goes into the hands-on activities that our visitors come and enjoy in the building. That also goes for developing content for the web, as well as live programs and speaker series. So all of that kind of behind the scenes science content. The next piece that I mention is outreach. When I'm out there talking to the public and doing that science communication out on the ground. Um, And that's one of my favorite parts of the job because I really like talking to people about science. The third part, I would say, is research. So I work with a lot of scientists to really learn about how people learn science, which is kind of meta. Really meta. (laughs) But, you know, one of the things that we want to do is to be able to teach science better, we have to know what works and how people learn and how people connect science to their everyday lives. And so that piece of digging into how people make sense of science is really essential to the first two parts of my job is to make sure that we're doing it well. And the last part of my job is working with scientists and helping them become better science communicators. I think you know, one thing that we know and this one thing that I'll talk about tonight is you know, building a better dialogue between scientists and the public. And that's where museums can play a role in bringing them together. But Scientists don't always have the best tools or the best skills to carry on the conversations in a way that, that helps people relate to the science and, and connect it back to, to what matters to them. And so we help scientists develop you know, hands-on activities about their research or communication skills that just help them have better conversations with people, not only to communicate the science better, but to also open their minds up to learning from the public. So you first mentioned just breaking down these really complex science and conceptualizing what we're learning. How do you exactly go about the process of breaking down a really complex scientific issue such that it's approachable for someone who really has no background in science? You know, for me, one of the most fun things about my job is that I get to learn about a lot of different kinds of science. And so the first step for me is always making sure that I understand it probably much deeper than I'll need to explain it to somebody. But that's to make sense of it in my own mind and to figure out what story I want to tell. 
because a lot of science is complex and there are a lot of angles you can take and you don't need to necessarily tell everybody everything. <laughs> so, so what is that one story that I think is the most compelling? And then once you have that story to start out with, how do you make it engaging? And at the Franklin Institute, trying to make it hands-on and participatory is one of the most important things. And one strategy that I often use is I often look at diagrams of, of mm -hmm. science and think about how to make them three-dimensional. Because to me, when you try and create a model of a scientific concept, um, it can be tough because you want to make sure that you're not misrepresenting something or trying to make an analogy that doesn't quite work all the way out. Uh, and so starting with a, a picture, you know, whether it's something I find or whether it's something I draw, and then using that as a starting point for making something physical and tangible um, is always a really good place to start for, for me. And then of course the most important piece is how do you help people kind of learn on their own you know, I don't see myself necessarily as a teacher. I see myself more as a guide, mm -hmm. that I have tools that can help people learn. But it's no good if I just tell them the thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's more about asking questions to figure out what their starting point is, figuring out why, why this might matter to them, and then using those questions to guide their learning so that Ultimately, hopefully, they come to the understanding themselves, and that's a much more powerful and effective way of learning than just telling them facts. So, to create a more powerful and effective way of learning, how can we integrate the arts and humanities into science, and vice versa, science into the arts and humanities? That's a really good question. <laughs> so, you know, there's this acronym of turning STEM into STEAM. Mm -hmm. And you know, I feel like sometimes it doesn't really do either one justice. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm glad that you asked it from both directions um, because I think it's important to be intentional about thinking at, uh, about it from, from both points of view. So I'll, I'll start out with an example. So one of the elements of our brain exhibit is a collaboration that we did with um, an, an engineer and a neuroscientist who are also artists. <laughs> and they created this amazing work of art that essentially uses the same technique that you use to print computer chips, but this time they printed a simulation of brain activity so that as light moves across this image of the brain, it, it, it kind of reenacts the signaling that's happening in your brain as you're looking at a piece of art. <laughs> And so to me, this is such a very, it's such a cool example to look at, look at it from both sides. Mm -hmm. From the science point of view, um, you know, with, <laughs> with Alexa's help <laughs> um, at the Franklin Institute, we did a, an evaluation study to, to understand, you know, what people are getting out of looking at this piece of art and how it influences their uh, understanding of the science. And what we find is that this artistic representation you know, it gives people a different entry point into science um, because, you know, people approach science from many different interests and art is just another angle to, to come at it from. It helps people visualize things that are invisible because, you know, you know it's, it's, it's hard for people to imagine what's happening inside their brain. And this is a very, you know, the complexity of this piece of art, you know, really builds people's appreciation of, um, of, of how complex and dynamic their own brain is. 
Um, and, and it also really empowers them in a way now that they have this appreciation and this understanding to really to really think about what their brain is doing and how their brain is working and hopefully take better care of their brain. So from that point of view, you know, the art really adds another layer of understanding to the science. If you flip it around, you know, the artists that we worked with, they really invented a new method of creating art. Uh, and the artist's names are Greg Dunn and Brian Edwards, and the piece is called Self-Reflected, so you can search for this to, to get, a, get a feel for what this piece looks like. But the fact that they both had scientific backgrounds you know, made it possible for them to create this piece of art that, I, that wouldn't be possible <laughs> otherwise. And you know, I think looking at science can generate more creativity in, in creating art. And then I think if we look at the intersection, you know, there is this terrible myth that is pervasive in our society that, you know, that arts and you know, creativity live on the right side of your brain and, you know, the analytical skills for science yeah. on the left side of your brain. And I just want to, you know, <laughs> fight that every time I hear it. <laughs> but I think, you know, as you look at the intersection of science and art, what you become, what you become appreciative of is that they both require creativity and analysis and, you know, in, in ways that, you know, either one individually, you know, require the other to, to inform them. Now, to broaden beyond art and get to, you know, you know, more social sciences, I think what we know is that science doesn't just exist in a vacuum, right? It's science exists in the world that we create. And thinking about the impact that science has on that world requires knowing and understanding and appreciating the social sciences. Because science is, is created by people, it involves people's values, it affects people's social relationships with each other, and it exists in the systems that we've created it for it. And all of these inform science at every step of the way, from the choices that we make about what to study, to the impact it will have, and who it helps and who it hurts and you know, whose priorities take precedence, uh, and you know, how do we ensure that there are diverse voices at the table when we're thinking about you know, how to be responsible about science. Uh, and all of that requires an appreciation um, for the social sciences that I think is really just starting to mature now. I think that you know, science has historically not been great <laughs> uh, at, at integrating the social sciences. But, you know, as, you know, we have these new formal fields of things like bioethics or um, the science of science communication, you know, applying those, you know, more rigorous approaches to engaging the social sciences is something that scientists can appreciate better. It's like you know, taking the social scientists and talking to scientists in their own language. <laughs> uh, and, and again, building those communication skills, I think, is, is going to be good for science in the long run. You've been, you mentioned the Your Brain exhibit, and that exhibit really takes a whole, a whole discipline of information, right, of neuroscience, and breaks it down such that it um, builds upon itself and makes it easier to understand for people who are approaching this for the first time. How do you go about setting up something such that it builds on itself in that way, starting from the, just the basics of the neuron all the way up to the bioethics of neuroscience. Yeah. Well, we had a bit of a luxury <laughs> with that particular exhibit. 
um, because it's a very large exhibit. It's, it's over 8,500 square feet, which is twice as big as any of our other exhibits. Um, and it's also in a wing of its own. So from a physical design point of view, we were actually able to break up the entire exhibit space into smaller galleries where we could guide people through a scaffold of knowledge. So we can introduce them to sort of big ideas about the brain to kind of meet them where they are, and then introduce them to neurons followed by how neurons are connected into pathways and then how pathways organize themselves into cognitive systems and so on. So that works really well for the brain because it's a topic that not many people know about. But we don't always have that luxury of being able to design so intentionally. And in fact, that's also not necessarily the way people learn. You know, we encounter information in all kinds of places, you know, whether it's on the internet or from your neighbor that you're talking to or, you know, an, and sometimes even an advertisement that goes by on a bus. <laughs> um, so, so we sort of embrace the idea that, you know, you're not always going to be able to introduce somebody in, to, to a topic in, in a progression that you might expect in a college course for instance. Um, and that's okay, because ultimately people are making their own meaning out of whatever they encounter. So if we can make a particular learning experience um, intuitive enough that you know, that concept is clear enough that you, know, you can make that connection for yourself, then ultimately that individual experience is successful. The more we can build on that, you know, whether it's through, you know, um, structural design of an exhibit or the, the look and feel of the exhibit um, to, to kind of support that in a way that, that, that really strengthens those learning experiences on top of each other, that's great. <laughs> but you know, the, the challenge with informal education is you never know, how, you know how, what somebody's going to encounter, how they're going to experience it, and what they're going to take away. Do you have any critiques of the current way we're going about communicating science? And how would you fix it? <laughs> You know, it's, it's hard to define science communication because, as, as I was saying, it kind of happens in so many ways. Um, so I'm going to focus in on the part of science communication that I, I think about in particular, which is really looking at how to bring scientists and public audiences together to have this better dialogue with each other. You know, one common misconception that is that we encounter with scientists is that there's this perception that if, if only people understood the facts, then they would then they would believe in the science, if that's what you want to call it. <laughs> Talk about the difference between knowledge and belief. But but what we find from psychology and communications is that that's not true. And you know you can make connections to to you know politics and culture in ways that I think help us understand this, which is that you know, we all have our own biases. We all you know, have our own personal identities. And science is no different than any other kind of information that we interpret science through the lens of whatever personal identity we're, we're bringing along. And going back to your earlier question about you know, the importance of the social sciences, you know, one thing that I think scientists are, are just starting to appreciate is that role of being open 
to leading with, with questions and trying to understand their audience rather than just deliver the facts from the get-go. The flip side of that conversation then is, is the public audiences. <laughs> and facts you know, are important, <laughs> and yet in the, the very crowded media landscape that, that we're dealing with, it's often hard to tell you know, what's true, what's not. Uh, and you know, just because it's true doesn't mean there's only one way to interpret it, and, and how do we make sense of all of this information? And so I think it takes some responsibility on, you know, on the part of the public to also look at you know, what our own biases are and to be self-aware about how we might be filtering information, um, and that's, which is a hard thing to do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but one of the things that we try to work into many of our programs is how do you think critically? So why do you know what, what you know? And how do you understand that this is coming from a credible source? And what are some strategies that you can use to, to be a more critical consumer of information? So that you know, when you're having this conversation about science, that we can have a trust that we're both starting from facts. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that facts certainly don't stand alone, but you need to establish that, that baseline um, to be able to have a productive conversation. How can we continue this conversation about the value of science communication in our own lives as students and as aspiring researchers and for the, the current researchers who are listening to this, the researchers we know? So the best thing about science communication is you can do it anywhere. <laughs> and, you know, and the more you practice, the better you get at it. You know, I, I, I think one of my most successful exchanges in science communication happened um, while I was a poll watcher. <laughs> on election day <laughs> and when you're a poll watcher you stand around talking a lot <laughs> especially in a primary election when there aren't a lot of voters <laughs> and you know I had the conversation with somebody you know from the opposite political party but we found this connection in science and you know talked about sort of what science meant to us uh, and and found this common ground that you know I certainly wasn't expecting to find <laughs> you know when I when you know, when you show up at a, at a polling booth on, on election day. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, but having those skills and practicing those skills means that you know, you're equipped to have those conversations whenever the opportunity arises. Um, so whether it's you know, somebody you you're meet on, you know, at a party, or whether it's you know, a family member who might have a different point of view, um, you can practice your communication skills and, and for the most part, I find that the hardest thing to do, to do is remembering which questions to ask. <laughs> because it's often much easier to say what you're thinking. But if you ask somebody else what they're thinking first, then you're establishing that you're interested in what they have to say. Mm -hmm. And when you put that out there, then that makes them more willing to trust that you have something important to say yeah. as well. So, you know, it sounds kind of counterintuitive, but, you know, one of the most effective ways to be a communicator is to be a good listener. <laughs> uh, and, and that's a skill that you can, you know, you can practice everywhere. That's really wonderful. Thank you so yeah. much.